Father, we thank you for Christ, the Lamb of glory. We thank you for the cross, and that through the cross, Christ's death, his resurrection, that the enemy and his demons have been defeated, and there is victory in Christ. I want to be sensitive to your word this morning, being doers of your word and not hearers only. For it's in Christ's name I pray, amen. Three weeks ago, we were looking at Mark chapter 5, and we found there that Jesus cast out a legion of demons. From that passage, I made some applications, and then two weeks ago, we looked at a number of passages to just demonstrate that we are involved in demonic activity in the world in which we live today. Last week, we looked at... Several passages as it relates to separating, maybe not separating, but the fact that in our battle with the demonic, whether it be physical, whether it be emotional, what we call spiritual, and so on, that in all of that, God wants us to be dependent upon Christ and attempt to do, clarify some things that I mentioned a number of weeks ago. This morning, we want to look at several passages, as time permits, just about the fact that we live in Satan's world, we're involved in demonic activity because we live in Satan's world. When I say we're involved, we live in a world that is involved in demonic activity, not saying that you and I are directly involved in that at all times. But a couple questions, not looking for answers to these, but think about them. Is there demonic activity in our valley? The greater Wyoming Valley, is there demonic, demonic activity? Now, to bring it a little closer home, is there demonic activity in our families? Is there demonic activity in our church? I'm not talking the building, I'm talking, you know, the church being the body of Christ. Is there mo- demonic activity in your life? Remember the world, or a Satan and his demons... And the world system wants us to think and believe that all that there is to life is the here, the now, the seen, the material. But Scripture speaks in a much different manner. Let's take our Bibles and go to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. Now begin with verse 1. James chapter 3 and verse 1. James 3 and verse 1. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Where James is coming from there, that a person shouldn't be too quick to be a teacher for the simple reason that the teacher is judged more strictly because they are impacting others. We all, in verse 2, stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. 
Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and they are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small member or small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Now, in the context of, you know, not being too quick to teach, there's a greater judgment, he immediately talks about the tongue. Apparently, one who teaches needs to be careful with the tongue. He goes on in that context, you know, you put bits in the mouth of a horse, you know, it's very small in contrast to the size of the animal and you can control the animal. He uses the illustration of the ship, you know, the rudder being very small in contrast to the ship, but yet steers the entire ship. And then he says in verse 5, likewise. Just as the bit is small to guide the horse, the rudder is small to control the ship. He says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boast. Now think about how much trouble you would stay out of if you didn't have your tongue. It makes great boast. We're all in the same boat when it comes to that. Consider what great, a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Remember hearing of the fire in Texas last summer, and then almost every year there's some fires in California, and you think you can start that with a small match. He says that's what the tongue is like. The tongue in verse 6 also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire. And then notice at the end of verse 6, and is itself set on fire by hell. Do you ever stop to consider that the tongue used in an evil manner involves hell, involves the demonic? I listen or read occasionally concerning the whole political process that we're in the midst of with, you know, the Republican primary and listen to people share and interact, and sometimes I mentally step back and shake my head and think, how much a demonic is involved there? The way people cut one another. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, and it sets a whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. <coughs> he goes on in verse 7, all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. The tongue, deadly evil, or deadly poison, restless evil. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in God's likeness. Did you ever say something unkind to your mate or to your children or to your parents that was really cutting? You wished evil on them, but then you want to turn around and praise God? He says, out of the same math comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives and a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Now, James is saying some very, very strong things. You can't get salt water from a fresh spring. You don't get olives from a fig tree. And that is in the context of a tongue that is a restless evil full of deadly poison. He says no one can tame the tongue. You ever stop to consider that you can't tame your tongue? We can't tame our tongue. That comes through Christ. That comes through the body of Christ. How many times have we made a commitment? I'm not going to speak like that anymore. And then we turn around and stick our foot in our mouth. The tongue itself is set on fire by hell. The tongue is a fire, a world of evil corrupts the whole person being set on fire by hell. Now think about the tongue in terms of demonic. And in the context of James, I think James gives some context of how the tongue might be used in an ungodly way. In chapter 1, verses 2 through 12, he talks about trials. And he's writing to believers. And he says, in the midst of your trial, you're to rejoice because trials, you know, will result in our maturity, our being Christ-like. What are we tempted to do in trials? I hate this. Get me out of it. It's not fair. Why me, God? And depends on the trial and where we are in the midst of it, we may talk to someone else, bemoaning how terrible it is. Have you ever considered that there may be some demonic activity there when we're tempted in that way? And I think we've all been there, if we're honest with ourselves. In James 2, he talks about favoritism in verses 1 through 13. The tongue can really have a lot to say about favoritism. You know, someone comes into our church and they're dressed nice and we know they're a multi-billionaire. Come on up, take a nice front seat. And then someone else comes in, you know, with sandals on and their hair looks kind of on camp and so on. And we say, well, you sit back in the corner. 
And then after the service, we say, do you see who was in the front seat? Maybe we can get some bucks out of him. But that guy in the back, you know, he, have we stopped to consider them? We talk that way. There may be some demonic involved there. In light of the flow of James. In the world at large, have you considered the demonic in the whole political process? Have you considered that there may be some demonic in talk radio? Have you considered that there may be some demonic when we talk about our country? And we say some not so nice things about those in authority over us. Have you considered that in a marital squabble, there may be some demonic activity when you tear one another down. You never, you always. The tongue. Ever considered that those of you who are still living at home may have some demonic involved when you criticize and sass back to your parents? Have we considered that the demonic may be involved when we sit around and gossip about others? The tongue. You know, demonic. The tongue is itself set on fire by hell. Let's go over to chapter 4 of James. Chapter 4 of James. He begins, he says, in chapter 4 and verse 1, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Now let's stop there for a second. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Writing to professing believers. Apparently they're having some types of fights and quarrels, you know, verbally, and we don't know what else is involved. And he says, what causes them? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? Now, fights and quarrels among believers are not new. They've been going on since the beginning of the church. But he says, you know, they come from, bat- you know, desires that battle within you. Now, whether I'm willing to admit it or not, if Ruth Ann and I get into some type of contention, I'm always at fault. Because we wouldn't have the contention if I didn't yield to those desires. And she's always at fault because... If she didn't yield to those desires, she couldn't fight with me because one person can't squabble. So anytime you have a fight and a quarrel, both are responsible. They come from desires within us. He goes on. You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask You do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And in verse 4, he says, you idolatrous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Apparently, in relationships where I seek for myself, I moved into the world, thinking like the world, thinking of the here, seen, and now, and I've become a friend of the world, letting God out of the picture. 
He says, you adulterous people. What is one who's involved in adultery? One who is giving him or herself to someone other than his or her mate. And in the context, the believers are giving themselves to the world, to think like the world, to respond like the world. So they get in fights and quarrels because of their selfish desires. In verse 5, he says, or do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? I think he's talking about the spirit of God, envying intensely that we would be yielded to God. But he gives more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So you're in the midst of a family squabble. And if you're in the midst of the family squabble, everyone involved is being proud. And what's God doing? Opposing. You ever think about that? In the midst of a family squabble, what's God doing? He's opposing. God resists the proud. And finally someone says, oh, I was wrong. I've been so proud. I've been sticking up for myself. I've been selfish. What's God doing? Extending grace to that person. God opposes the proud. He's going to extend grace for that person to deal with their pride. And then notice what he says in verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Apparently the devil has been involved in all of this. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. In James 4, 1 through 12, selfish, idolatrous relationships which involve slander, which he mentions in verses 11 and 12 indicate the need to submit to God and resist the devil. Apparently, something demonic going on there. Not saying possessed, but just, you know, the demons apparently are at work. Stop and think how often we're, we may be tempted, I said tempted, to speak like the world. I don't know where you stand on national health care. But wherever you stand, when something is mentioned about national health care, do you think as God wants you to think? Or do you think like the world thinks? Well, I don't like that. Oh, it'll really be great. Or do we respond with something like this? God set those in authority, people in authority over us, and we will humbly submit to their authority, whether we agree or not. Because you can end up in a heated debate about a lot of political things, but it's not God put them in authority over us. And the world says, in many respects, resist them and make sure they change to your liking and how the tongue comes to play in that setting. 
Stop and think about relationships and how the enemy wants to be involved. And let's go over to the next book in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter is writing to a group of believers who've been scattered throughout among among a number of nations. They're going through persecution. They're facing difficulty, giving them guidance and how to live well in the midst of persecution. And notice what he says in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5. Young men in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kinds or same kind of suffering. Back to verse five, he talks about being submissive. Earlier, he had talked about <clears throat> citizens being submissive to those in authority over them, and he was writing to people who were being persecuted. He talked about slaves being submissive to their masters. He talked about wives being submissive to their husbands. He talked about believers being submissive in the midst of persecution. And here he says, young men, be submissive to those who are older. And all of you, not limited to the young, clothe yourselves with humility. I can't handle life. I need God. Because God opposes the proud. But gives grace to the humble. And then he talks about humility, but in verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. You ever considered the enemy, Satan, prowls around seeking people to devour? And one of the ways he must do that, according to James, would be the tongue. So a little tension in a local church. The enemy is prowling around. To destroy. To devour. Tension within a family setting. The enemy prowling around seeking to destroy. We are in a battle that is far beyond us. Someone gives you a hard time at work and you're tempted to respond in kind, a hard time because you're a Christian. You just start striving to live out your Christian faith on the job. And you think, oh, the enemy prowling around trying to get through to me through this person. I'm going to resist him. I'm going to stand firm in my faith because I know that there's a lot of people throughout the world undergoing all kinds of sufferings because of their faith in Christ. Peter's writing to believers. Be self-controlled, be alert, 
your enemy, the devil, prowling, prowls around like a roaring lion. He is at work. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And if you go over to Revelation chapter 12, and we won't be there this week, but you find that one of the ways he does that is to get us to accuse one another. That's why Peter would say in chapter 1, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled, set your hope fully in the grace to be given you because the enemy prowls around. We're in a spiritual battle. We're amongst demonic activity. The tongue, relationships, Peter says, be self-controlled, be alert, because your enemy prowls around. Now, in the context of all of that, and don't worry about the slides I'm skipping over, in the context of all of that, I want you to think about our sources of victory. God has given the believer two resources to live well in Satan's world. Both are essential. One is not more important than the other. They're both essential, and they're dependent upon one another. Christ, living and written. Christ, living and written. When I say written, referring to Scripture and the body of Christ. You tempted in the terms of the tongue. Christ is my life. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 4. You have used the tongue in an incorrect way. Christ is my life. God has forgiven me. I'm to go and seek forgiveness of them. Christ living within us. Christ written as revealed in Scripture, but also the body of Christ. <laughs> Fellow believers, the Holy Spirit living in believers, and the resource, the blessing that they become in our day-by-day -day living. So Daniel says to Tom, Tom, I'm only using this as an example. I don't know if Daniel has this problem or not. <laughs> Tom, I got this problem with the tongue. I say things to Alberta I don't want to say, and my neighbor ticks me off so much sometimes, I've told them off a couple, or my neighbors have told them off a couple times. Tom, can you help me? Will you pray for me? Will you minister to me? Will you ask me in a couple of days how I'm doing? Tom says, sure, Daniel, I'll gladly do that. Arden comes home from work, and he, Bav can see that he's just stewing steam. And Bav says, Arden, what's wrong? Nothing! And then um, 
he happens to come in Awana to Awana the night there's nothing wrong. And Rick Hayes says, Arden, how are you doing? And Rick can tell by the pause that something's not quite right. And Arden says, oh, I'll survive. And Rick says, come on, afterwards, let's talk about this a little. And later on, Arden says, you know, I had a terrible day at work. Fellow isn't doing his job right that's supposed to be, you know, on the night shift. And my employer, you know, isn't treating me right. I'm just fed up. And then I come home, and I, on the way home, I think about my wife having cancer and I'm just fed up here with life, and I'm struggling in my relationships. And Rick says, you know, Jeff's standing over there. And I see Travis. Let's, let me go grab them, and you share with the three of us what you're going through, and we're going to take some time to pray for you. That's the body at work. We live in Satan's world. He's the God of this world. And God has given us us Christ, the living word, the written word, and he has given us the body of Christ to deal with the enemy. What are we tempted to do in that context? Live as islands. and not in dependency upon the body of Christ who can point us to Christ. I'm not going to give opportunity to respond because if everyone responded that could, we'd be here for hours. How many of us have battled in Satan's world this week? And we have been beaten, not defeated, but beaten hard. And you just need the body to minister to you. You need someone to encourage you that Christ is your life. You need someone to encourage you that the scripture is so powerful. Think about it, meditate upon it, and renew the mind. But the enemy says, make it alone. God says, no, I've given you Christ, the living word, the written word. I've given you the body of Christ to minister.